I, I enjoy getting over here and seeing what crazy stuff Ken and Pete are up to. Some of you informed me a bit I could use some more. Uh, just, it is good to have friends like that. And what I do when I come over here is he gives me assignments, Ken does, that are absolutely impossible. How do you talk about repentance? I mean, it's just one of those huge topics that I could do a theology class on repentance, but to do a sermon on repentance? I, and when I think of repentance, don't you think of somebody with a signboard out on the street screaming at you? Repent or burn! Kind of thing. Well, that's not quite what I have in mind. So I decided what I would do is I would take one of the uh, stories in Scripture that is an absolutely impossible story that centers around repentance, and let's think it through together. You want to do that? Okay, grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis 37, so take them out or turn them on or however you do your Bible. And uh, this is the story of, of Judah, uh, and it's the story of Joseph, and uh, it's, it's, the, it's the beginning of a story that takes us clear through the end of Genesis. Uh, and it's, it's one of the stories that, well, for years, uh, I would go to my friends uh, who taught Old Testament, and I'd say, like, what's with the Judah story? And they would say, what do you mean? i say, well, you know, Judah, you, you think he might be a good guy, but he's really a bad guy, like a seriously bad guy? What's, what's the deal with Judah? And they'd say, oh, it's a literary thing. I'd say, well, I get it's a literary thing, but like, what's the, what's the deal? Well, follow me through and let's see what we can do with this. Okay, you got Genesis 37? This is the story of, of Joseph. He's 17. What does that make you think? I, it's not going to be good. Uh, and he is... Uh, he is most loved, verse 3, of his sons of Joseph, uh, or of Israel, Jacob, uh, because he'd been born in his old age. So he made this fancy robe for him. And when his brothers saw he loved him more than any of them, they hated him. So what does Joseph do? He has a dream. And this dream is that there are sheaves of grain and all of your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. Now, how do you think it's going to work out with the brothers who hate him? I mean, why tell him the dream? Is he just an, a stupid kid? Is he an arrogant so-and-so? Is he just naive? Or like, what's he doing? And their response is, verse 8, do you intend to reign over us? Like, really? And they hated him all the more. So he had another dream, and he told his brothers, uh, this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Who do you think the 11 stars might be? Hmm. So he told his father with his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I, your brothers, actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers even worse. So, okay, so that's the setting of the story. Uh, I don't expect things to work out well for Judah. So his brothers are out doing their flock thing, and Joseph says, why don't, or Israel says, why don't you take some, some uh, stuff out to the guys and find out what's going on and come back and report to me. So he does that. 
And he gets out in verse 16, I'm looking for my brothers, can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? And they said, well, I've moved on. Let's go to Dothan. So he follows over there, and the brothers see him from a distance, verse 18, and they plotted to what? Kill him. How come? They hate him. Why do they hate him? He's the favored son. He takes it seriously. He I don't know, just so they hate him. Okay, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. We'll throw him his cistern and say the ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Well, Reuben, who is kind of the hero, says, uh, I, why don't we, you know, let's, let's just drop him in the cistern and it'll, you know, and then he thought he'd come back and rescue him later. So verse 23, the Joseph's country brother, they stripped him down to his robe, stripped him of his robe, and they threw him in the cistern and no water. Verse 25, now here's the brothers. What kind of character the brothers have? They sat down to eat their meal. What are they doing? Where's, where's Joseph? He's in the cistern. They're chowing down on lunch. What do you think Joseph is doing? Don't do it. Help me. And what are they doing? Totally ignoring him, chowing down on their lunch. And what are they going to do to him? They're going to kill him. Good brothers or bad brothers? Are they like your brothers? They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they're on their way down to Egypt. Judah, now here's the first time he shows up. Note the character. Uh, like, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Uh, tell you what, let's sell him. Why kill him? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelite slave traders. He'll end up dead and we'll have money. What do you call a guy like that? What do you call a guy like that? Yeah, let's, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. Make money on him. I mean, that is cold mercenary. I mean, that is, that's, that is cold. And then he says, after all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. Yeah, let's sell him, make money, kill him. It'll be great. And the brothers agreed. So the Midianite merchants came. His brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver, which is a nice sum of money. And they took him to Egypt. Reuben came back. He's not there. Verse 31, they got Joseph's robe. Now that's the fancy one, these daddy, you know, the technicolor dream coat thing. Slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood, and they took the ornate robe back to his father and said, Daddy, Daddy, look what we found. What does daddy do? He recognizes the robe. Verse 33. It's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And Jacob, daddy, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, mourned for his son for many days. Now, look what happens in 35. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. Okay. So here are the brothers. What are they doing? They're comforting daddy. What have they done? Exactly. They sold him into slavery on a train. <laughs> Sent him to Egypt. They know exactly what's happened to him. 
But here they are comforting the daddy. Oh, daddy, it'll be okay. What do you call guys like that? Judah among them. I don't know. Callous hypocrites? Do they really care about their daddy? They know that they've caused him incredible harm. They're the ones who caused the pain. Oh, daddy, it's so hard. Fake compassion. Callous hypocrites. Judah among them. He would not be comforted. I'll continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So he ended up being sold off to Potiphar. Verse chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went to stay a man of Adullam named Hira. So here's the tension in the house. What does Judah do? He runs away. What do you call a guy who runs away from tension in the family? Coward, maybe? Can't deal with the tension? Judah, good guy or bad guy? Pretty sketchy. Pretty sketchy. Pretty sketchy. There Judah met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he married her. Now, where did Abram Abram get his wife? back in the home country, brought her to Canaan. When Isaac was looking at it for a wife, what did Abram do? He said, don't marry a Canaanite woman. How come? Because they're Baal worshipers. So he sent back to his home country and got a wife for Isaac. And then when Jacob needed a wife, what did he do? Isaac went back to the home, well, actually, Jacob kind of stole some birthright and went back to the home country and stole some stuff from, you know, not a good guy. But you don't marry a Canaanite. How come? Because they worship Baal. They worship the evil god of the Canaanites. Don't marry somebody from Canaan. So what does Judah do? He marries a Canaanite woman. He's a guy who despises marriage. He made love to her. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son whose name is Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and named him Onan. Gave birth to another son named Shelah. So, three sons. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord killed him. How wicked do you have to be for God to kill you? How wicked do you have to be for God to kill you? I mean, it's got to be awful. Because Judah's still alive. And Jacob, who is the deceiver among all deceivers, is still alive. Wow, wicked son. wonder how daddy contributed to that. So Judah said to Onan, the younger brother, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. You know, that's the thing you do. If a brother dies, then the other brother fathers a son who will be the son of the dead brother to continue the heritage. 
But Onan knew the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. So what he's doing is getting all the fun of the lovemaking, but none of the responsibility. It's an evil thing. So what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death as well. How many sons does Judah have? Three. What happened to the first one? Dead, wicked. What happened to the second one? Dead, wicked. What happened to the third one? Well, stay tuned. <laughs> Judah then said to his brother Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, who is she? Who is Tamar? That's his first son's widow who had been abused by his second son. Live, and here's what he says to her. Live as a widow in your father's household. Now, women, in those days when you marry, who does the woman belong to? To the husband. If the husband dies, what's the woman's connection? To her husband's father, because she leaves the household so what Judah is saying here, he has responsibility for his wife, for his son's wife. And instead of taking that responsibility, he kicks her out and says, go let your dad take care of you. He is absolutely, absolutely blame. He is, he's, he's kicking her out. Total abdication of responsibility that he has under his clan. Total abdication. And look why. Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. Now again, that's the thing that normally the youngest brother would have responsibility to Tamar. For he thought, he may die too. Now who's the he? That's his third son, Sheila. Just like his brothers. So what's he doing? In Judah's thinking, why are his two sons dead? Because they married Tamar. He's blaming Tamar for his son's wickedness. I mean, that's a blame shifter. He's a deceiver. He's not going to give Sheila to Tamar. He is absolutely lying to her. Kicking her out, sending her home to daddy. Good guy or bad guy? Man, it's going downhill. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, where the men were shearing his sheep, and his friend hired Adamite, a Dulamite, went with him. Now, what is a sheep shearing party like? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like the graduation party at the frat house. What is this guy doing? He is grieving his dead wife, and how is he grieving his dead wife? by going to a sheep-shearing party. Oh my gosh. This guy is debauched. This guy is debauched. Hey, well, okay, maybe it'll get better here. I don't know. When Tamar was told, verse 13, your father-in-law is away to Tim to shear sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, which she's been living as a widow for a long time with her daddy, which means she... 
is living in shame, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, then sat down in the entrance to Enium, which is on the road to Timnath, for she thought, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. She totally gets what's going on. She totally gets that not only I've been kicked out by my father-in-law, but I've been lied to. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Hey, let me sleep with you. Now, what's he doing here? He's grieving his dead wife. He's headed for a sheep shearing party to get sloused. And he sees a woman on the way that's a prostitute and he proposes to her. Good guy or bad guy? Man, is this spiraling down. So, she said, what do you give me? Like this is a business deal. He says, I'll send you a young goat. What does that mean? He knows what the going price is for a prostitute. This is not his first rodeo. Will you give me something as a pledge, she said, because she noticed he doesn't have a young goat with her. He said, what pledge should I give you? She said, your driver's license and your visa card. <laughs> and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her. Now what do you call him? An idiot. I mean, for crying out loud, guy, think for half a second. Let your gonads quit controlling your mind and think. Oh my gosh. So, he did it. She gave him to, he gave them to her, slept with her, and she became pregnant. After she left, she took off her veil, put her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, verse 20, Judas sent the young goat by his friend, the Adumalite, uh, Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back. He wants his driver's license and visa card back. But he didn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute? Now what's that? What's a shrine prostitute? That means a prostitute who is doing business in the name of another god. So not just your ordinary prostitute, but your demonic prostitute. And here's the point. Judah knows that this prostitute is a shrine prostitute. Ay, ay, ay. Good guy or bad guy? Man, this is spiraling down. Where's the shrine prostitute? Well, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. Besides the men who live there, they said there hasn't been a shrine prostitute there. So Judah said, eh, okay, let her keep it. We can't do anything or we'll become a laughing stock. Why? Because you're a total idiot to give your visa card and driver's license. After all, I did send the young goat. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. What does Judah suggest happened to his daughter-in-law? Bring her out and have her burned to death. Oh my gosh. 
Now I know Mosaic Code isn't out yet, but under the Mosaic Code, what is the, what is the penalty for uh, being an adulterer or a prostitute? To be stoned, what's he going to do? He's going to burn her. So he's going to use a pagan way of killing her that's extremely painful. Stoning is not nearly as, as painful. He's a guy who's burning women for fun to get rid of inconvenient women. Verse 25. As she's being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And he held up a driver's license and a visa card. What's that called? Busted. Oh my gosh. Now, Judah, good guy or bad guy? About as bad as you can get. It's hard to imagine how you could have somebody be more of a snake than Judah. He sells his brother for a buck. He's a callous hypocrite who shreds his father's heart. He despises marriage. He's a griefless dictator. A lying, irresponsible, blame-shifting, debauched fool who comforts himself with a shrine prostitute, a misogynist who burns women. Okay, now, stick your finger there and turn over to chapter 49. Genesis 49. This is Jacob blessing his son as he dies. So, I... Uh, Reuben is the firstborn. This is verse 3, 49.3. Uh, so verse 4, Turbulence waters you will no longer excel. Well, that's not a blessing. That's a curse. Simon and Levi, verse 5, are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me join their assembly for they've killed. So that's not a blessing. That's a curse. On the first brothers. Verse 7, Cursed be their anger so fierce. Okay, so he's cursed the first brothers for being bad guys. Here's the third blessing, verse 8, on Judah. Judah, good guy or bad guy? Yeah, bad guy. Judah, what is he saying? Judah, your brothers will what? Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah, you return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares rouse him. And then look at verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Okay, now what's, what's a scepter? What's a scepter? That's what a king carries. What's he saying here? Remember clear back in Genesis chapter 3, we had the thing about the coming Messiah, the seed, the Zara, and we've been watching for who will be the Messiah who will crush the serpent. That's what he's talking about. The scepter will not depart from whom? Judah, good guy or bad guy? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations will be his, and it goes on. What is happening here? What is happening here? Jacob is speaking God's blessing, and what kind of blessing is it? It's the highest possible 
blessing. And who is Judah? He is about as low a snake as you'll ever see. How in the world, how in the world can God bless a snake like Judah? He is going to be the one out of the 12 brothers. And here you've got Joseph, who in the story is the best guy ever. And God bypasses Joseph, who's a great guy, and goes to Judah, who is a total snake, and says, you will get the highest blessing. Through you will come the Messiah. And, of course, we know as things worked out, David is of the tribe of Judah. And the whole thing, the whole nation knows as Israel. And today we call Israelites, what do we call Israelites today? We call them Jews. How come? They're named for Judah. How in the world can the most holy, righteous God that we've sung about here this morning... How can the holy, righteous God bless a snake like Judah? How can that be? How can we worship a God who is so ignorant, I guess, that he would bless a guy like Jacob or like Judah? How can that be? How can that be? I mean, this is why I went to my Old Testament friends and said, what's the deal? What in the world is going on here? I mean, if I were crafting a story of an evil guy, I don't think I could do worse than Judah. But yet God blesses him to the heavens. How can this be? And my Old Testament professor things were saying, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a literary thing. He's got to save the Messianic line. Listen, There are 11 other brothers, and Joseph is as good as any man in the Bible. Why not go through Joseph? I mean, it's it's an impossible story. Remember Abraham in chapter 18 in Genesis? He says to God, will not the king of the universe do right, do justice? How can the God of all justice bless Judah absolute snake and how can we worship a God who would do that it's a huge problem I got this thing about reading the Bible and taking it seriously and this is a huge problem this is a huge problem and I kicked around and kicked around and kicked around and I think I may have the answer well you got to try it out with me are you willing to do that Okay, some of you are wishing, I should have stayed home today. I should have stayed home today. Okay, now think with me here for a minute. Genesis 38, you read verse 25, where she hauled out the visa and the driver's license. Verse 26, Judah recognized them. Now, Judah is total powerful. He is the top dog of the whole clan. He has absolute power. When Judah recognizes them and she hauls out the visa card and the driver's license are clearly his. 
What could Judah have done? The snake. I mean, what he could have done is said, Oh, you stole him! Kill her! What would have happened? Should have been dead. Thief. Note what he does. Verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, What is that? What does he say? She is more righteous than I. Now, what's he being accused of here? What's he being accused of when she pulls out the driver's license and the visa card? She is accusing him of being the father of the baby in her womb that she has had by prostitution. What does he admit to when she says, she, the pregnant prostitute, is more righteous than I? What does he say next? Since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. Now, who knew about that? Nobody. What's he doing here? To me, it's very telling. It's very telling that not only does he accuse her of theft and have her killed to get himself out of trouble. He says to her, the pregnant prostitute, she is more righteous than I. What's he doing? He is acknowledging his sin. And not only the sin of fathering a wound by prostitution, not only the sin of having a child in a forbidden way, but also admitting something nobody is accusing him of. Here is a man who, when confronted with his sin, instead of denying it or blame-shifting or kicking back against her, accepts responsibility for not only the sin that is obvious in being accused of, here's a man who accepts responsibility for sin that nobody really knew about. The work of the Holy Spirit is going deep in him. And what else does he do? Remember what he did with Tamar after his son died? Where did he send her? Back to her daddy, abdicating responsibility that he had in the customs of that day. Now what does he do? He brings her back into his house. He's now taking responsibility. He's kicked out earlier. And what else does he do? He does not sleep with her. He is now respecting her where he despised her before. Now one of my theses when I look at scripture is that the problem is not so much that we sin, it's how we handle the sin that we commit. Now sin's a problem, I don't mean be lackadaisical about that. But the real issue is not that we sin. I mean, we do. The real issue is how do we handle the sin that we almost inevitably end up doing? How has Judah handled his sin up to now? About as badly as you can. But for some reason, for some reason here, God's working in his life is that instead of 
kicking things off and blasting people as he has before, he now accepts responsibility for the sin. Confesses sin he was not accused of and acts responsibly coming out of that. Now, let's follow the story through. We've got the whole Joseph story down in Egypt and I'll skip all of that, as fun as that is. But I'll skip over to, let's go to 42, I guess, chapter 42. I won't read you the whole thing, of course. The heading here in my Bible is Joseph's brothers go to Egypt. And when they go down to Egypt, uh, because of the famine, they don't know that the vice president of Egypt is Joseph because he's an Egyptian finery and they haven't seen him for a long time and when they see him they don't recognize that this high official this prime minister of Egypt is in fact Joseph and as you read through this story you find that they're trying to buy food from him he questions them closely and accuses them of being spies because, of course, he recognizes them. They try to defend themselves. No, we're not spies. And he questions them and finds out that the little brother is not there, and he uses that as further evidence that they are spies. They try to protect themselves, but how can they do that? This is the prime minister of Egypt, and they're just poor beggars coming down from from Canaan. Totally helpless before before Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt. And he ends up selling them the grain and sends them back. And he said, you guys, are sh- you guys are spies, but I'll tell you what. Don't ever come back here unless you bring your little brother with you. Then I will know you're not spies. So they, they scurry back to Canaan, go back to daddy's house, totally relieved that they were able to get out of Egypt alive. And on the way, they discovered all their silvers in the top of the bags. Somehow the money came back to them. They're totally puzzled. But one thing for sure, do not go back to Egypt without Benjamin. Why did Benjamin not go down there? Because Jacob, the daddy, has already lost Joseph and he's not about to lose Benjamin. Okay, now chapter 43. The famine is still severe. So they've eaten all the grain they'd brought from Egypt. Their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. How come? Because they don't want to starve. Now, when I think of this story, I think of what's going on right now in South Sudan. I don't know if you follow that at all. Iskandar and Mary were students of mine when I was teaching in Beirut, and Iskandar is in South Sudan, and he's living in an absolute hellhole. Civil war, I mean, it's horrible. And they've got this famine down there, and I just saw a thing... They've been, extra, they've been declared an extreme famine right now, and they have pictures, these Doctors Without Borders and Medical Missions International and uh, government agencies going in, and terrible, terrible starvation going on. That's what it is in Canaan. The famine is severe. They have no food. They're starving to death. And out of desperation, Jacob says, please, go to Egypt. Verse 3, Judah said to him, But the man warned solemnly, you'll not see my face again unless my brother's with you. So if we go back, Daddy, we got to take Benjamin with us. Daddy says, no chance, no chance. I've already lost Joseph. I will not lose Benjamin. 
No, no, you guys got to go. Judah says, we can't go. He will not give us a single kernel of wheat. And this tension goes on. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. 43. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with us. Who's the boy? That's Benjamin. Send the boy along with me, and we will go so that we and you and our children may live and not die. And look at verse 9. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. I will bear the blame before you all my life. What's he doing here? This is Judah the snake, who has had an incredible level of repentance, now is willing to guarantee, offer himself as guarantee for Benjamin's safety. Why? So that the people will not die. He is willing to put his own life on the line for the sake of the family's survival. And amazingly, amazingly, Daddy agrees. Now they get down there and they face Joseph. And of course, Joseph knows it's Benjamin. And you see all the PTSD going on in him. He can't even hold composure. He's got to go back in the back room and weep and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he's, he's a nutcase because of the trauma that's been going on. But he comes out and he's still playing the Pharaoh's prime minister He's still praying the prayer of his fine minister. And he ends up doing this crazy thing where he puts his cup in the sack of Benjamin's grain. And then they don't know it. And after he gets out, he sends his soldiers and he discovers that the king's own cup is in the sack of Benjamin. And he is the high-powered prime minister says, okay, I get the boy because you guys are stealing my special cup. Now, what did Judah guarantee here in 43.9? I will guarantee his safety. And he goes to the prime minister of Egypt, not knowing it's his brother, and begins to negotiate with him in chapter 44. It's quite a story. And at the end of chapter 44, down at verse 31, look what happens. Verse 30, so now if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Verse 32, your servant, that's Judah, your servant will bring the great, sorry, your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Look at verse 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy 
returned to his brothers, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father. What's he doing here? What's he doing here? What is Judah doing here? He's saying to Joseph, my life for his. He's saying to the super powerful figure of Egypt who holds every possible power, my life for his. Why? Because of his compassion for the father. Who does that sound like? My life for his. Who does that sound like? It's like a guy named Jesus, doesn't it? Who came when our lives were forfeit. And in a way that he had no need to do, said, my life for... This sounds like Jesus. See, and here's, here's, here's what I find happening. When Judah is hit with his sin, there in chapter 38, and the Holy Spirit does its work, he genuinely repents. It's not that he just changed his way of living. He changed his whole value system and went from being a self-centered snake to becoming a self-giving savior. And as the story plays out, we see that deep change of value coming out in the rest of the story. And I think that's why he ends up getting the messianic blessing is because he is the one who is like Messiah. And he's also like us in that we need to, to change that kind of a thing. He lives his new life out of the power of repentance. Stick your finger here and skip over to Acts chapter 26 that we had read to us earlier by Madeline. Skip over to Acts 26. She read us this, the story of Paul before King Agrippa talking about his own call from Jesus Christ. Look at Acts 26, verse 18. Let me start there. His call is to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they'll receive forgiveness in the place of those sanctified. So what he's talking about here is he is coming and he is going to give the call to repent akin to what happened with Judah. Now what happened? Verse 19. So in King Agrippa, I was not disobedient from the vision of heaven, for first from those of Damascus, those of Jerusalem, those in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. What does he say here? I preach that they should what? Repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. What is repentance? It's changing those basic allegiances, those basic value systems, 
such that my life is changed. Now, in this occasion, in Acts chapter 26, when I first think of that, I think of somebody who's not a Christian. And of course, that's what he's talking about. Somebody who's not a Jesus follower, somebody who's still a Baal follower, somebody who's worshiping Artemis, somebody who's into the other pagan religions of those days. And repentance there means changing my mind about who's God around here and changing my allegiance from Artemis to Jesus as Lord. And the good thing is for anybody who changes that allegiance, and I speak here to some of you who may not be following Jesus yet, there is complete forgiveness and change that comes through Jesus who said, my life for yours. But what about those of us who are already Jesus followers? See, the same thing happens. The same thing happens. Because back in verse 18, it's talking about a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And now I look at myself. I'm an old man. I've been following Jesus passionately for, oh my gosh, 52 years, can it be? That's longer than most of you have been alive. What does it mean to repent in my life? Am I a Judah? Am I a snake? The answer is no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm a fervent Jesus follower, trying to do everything I can to bring my life into the sanctification that comes through Jesus Christ. What does repentance mean in my life? Repentance in my life, and that's what we think about in this Lenten season, is that we're thinking, what about the stuff in me that's still snakeish? That snake virus that's in all of us, that leads us to do sin, there's still snake virus in me. And what does that mean? It means there will come those times when somebody will pull out a visa card and a driver's license and I will feel busted, maybe. Or it may be just the word of a friend when suddenly I realize, oh my gosh, and I'll sing as we did earlier, Kyrie Lesu, Lord have mercy. I want to finish here with a verse that you probably know. Kick back to Psalm 139. Kick back to Psalm 139. It's an amazing passage. I'd love to work through that. The first six verses is talking about a God who is involved with us. The second six verses is talking about a God who cares deeply about who I am. The third set of six verses talks about a God who is powerful to change. That's Yahweh, the God of all grace. The last two verses of Psalm 139 is the song of repentance that I want us to sing today as a result of thinking about the Judah story and knowing there's some Judah in me yet. And this is it. Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my fearful ways. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And see, that's the call that I want to leave you with in this Lenten season about repentance. If if Judah the snake can be redeemed and transformed by the power of God, and he was, and blessed by God, what does that say about me? In the wickedness that's still a part of my life, it means I want to bring that wickedness to that God. Can I worship a God who will bless a snake? And the answer is no, I can't. I can't. But here's the thing. I can worship a God who will grace a snake and transform him into a savior figure. And that's what happened with Judah. The total snake transformed by God's grace because he's willing to say, Lord, have mercy on me, turned him into a person to be a model, a Christ-like person in the whole story. I can worship a God who will grace a snake and make him a Jesus-like person. And what's more, I can bring my own snakishness to that kind of God and say, Lord, search me. Holy Spirit, shine your light in me. And let me see, I want you to see the wickedness that's still in me. Because I firmly believe that in the case of my repentance, you will bring that transformation into my life. And I do that before the Lord of glory. I do that between my grace friends. Because that's the kind of God that we worship. It's a powerful God. A God of all repentance and transformation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are indeed the God who graces evildoers, transforming snakes into Christ-like figures. And Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray, search me, know my heart, try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Holy Spirit, that I may repent before you and you will lead me in the way everlasting. For the praise of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.